Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Again, no comments today, but I think it's a good thing because all of you people out there want to comment, so I'm going to get a whole bunch. I know that. Now, on our last podcast, Gabe and I got to the middle of Chapter 29. So Gabe is back with me in the studio today. We are ready to discuss the highlights from these new chapters, and we're going to start in the middle of Chapter 29 today because we didn't get that far. And uh, again, um, these chapters are very revealing uh, about Jim's life, and but mostly... They're about Jim being the romantic hero. Now, Deborah cannot be with us again today, uh, yet, uh, as I promised, Gabe is with me in the studio. He has a mic. Parker, who is generally here, is off on a special project, so it's just Gabe, me, and the equipment again. So, so uh, we think this is going to work just fine. All right, so we want get, to get right back into it. Welcome back, Gabe. Thank you. So glad to have you here. It's, uh, it's always good not to be alone. It would be really dangerous if it were me and just the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what we'd get out of this. All right. Um, so just to maybe just bring people up to, to speed, um, we, uh, we know that uh, you know, Jim and Jewel have really uh, formed a very solid relationship. Uh, Jim has become the virtual ruler of Patterson. Uh, he's, he's got a great home life he's got a great romance going but uh, he's got everybody wanting to kill him <laughs> and so, so this is where we are and the, the thing is is uh, one of the things I think that's just true is is Marlo uh, is he's almost exactly like well you have Jewel wanting to protect him Doraman wants to protect Jim um, you know, uh, all these people are really wanting to protect him. And actually, Marlowe makes this visit, and he kind of, uh, while he's there, he wants to protect him. And uh, this, on, on page 216, he's, uh, he's upset with Jim because Jim left Doraman's house way too early. And, of course, the reason why he left Doraman's house early is why. Because of uh, Jewel. Because of Jewel, right? And so, so we're going to get into uh, get into the story now about what what Jim saw with Jewel. Um, but here's the bottom of page two sixteen. Here's here's what uh, uh, Mar- um, Conrad writes. It says, "You must know that he had left Dorman's place very soon after his arrival, much too soon. In fact, for his safety, and of course, a long time before the war." In this, he was actuated by a sense of duty. He had to look after Stein's business, he said, hadn't he? To that end, with another disregard of his personal safety, he crossed the river, took up his quarters with Cornelius. How the latter had managed to exist through the troubled times, I can't say. As Stein's agent, after all, he must have had Dorman's protection in a measure, 
and in one way or another he was managed to wriggle through all the deadly co complications, while I have no doubt that his conduct, whatever line he was forced to take, was marked by that abjectness, which is like the stamp of the man. And so, so here the thing is, <laughs> Jim goes to live with his future stepfather-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so that could be a disaster for anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, through our marriage, we worked very hard never to have to move in with parents again. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, it, it, it really is kind of interesting from what goes on from this point. Um, the, the, the thing is, Here's what Marlowe reveals about this this whole time that uh, that Jim moved in with with um, uh, Cornelius. It really it really was kind of stupid in a way. It says uh, this is we have to skip over to page two seventeen to catch this. It says his position in any case could not have been other than extremely miserable. Yet it may well be that he found some advantages in it, and of course the advantage was uh, protecting Stein's goods, but also there was Jewel. Jim told me he had been received at first with an abject display of the most amicable sentiments. And this is what, what essentially what Cornelius was doing. The fellow apparently couldn't contain himself for joy, said Jim with disgust. He flew at me every morning to shake both my hands, confound him, but I could never tell whether there would be any breakfast. If I got three meals in two days, I considered myself jolly lucky, and he made me sign a chit for $10 every week. <laughs> and so... So here, now we know that he carried a letter firing Cornelius. All right, so, so here he's the new guy for Stein. And, uh, you know, but he still, he had the crust to charge Stein for Jim's upkeep. <laughs> and then he didn't feed him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you're seeing, you know, what, what a kind of a guy he was. And, uh, of course, he, then he told... Uh, uh, $10 a week, I mean, that doesn't sound uh, very much to us, but at that time, I mean, you know, that was a lot of money. He, he said he was sure Mr. Stein did not mean him to keep me for nothing. Well, he kept me on nothing as near as possible, but it put it down to the unsettled state of the country, made as if to tear his, tear his hair out, begging my pardon 20 times a day so that I had at last to entreat him not to worry. It made me sick. Half the roof of his house had fallen in. The whole place had a mangy look with wisps of dry grass sticking out at the corners of broken mats, flapping on every wall. He did his best to, to make out that Stein owed him money on the last three years trading, but his books were all torn and some were missing. He tried to hint it was his late wife's fault. Disgusting scoundrel. scoundrel. At last I had to forbid him to mention the late wife's uh, at all, it made Jewel cry, and so, so the the thing is, the guy was embezzling, the guy was stealing from Stein all along, and uh, you know, that's why he made it look like the books were wrong, and it's because the wife died; she wasn't there to say he was embezzling, and so, so anyway. Uh, he goes on to say, this is page 218, I couldn't discover what became of all the trade goods. There was nothing in the store but rats, having a high old time amongst a litter of brown paper and old sacking. 
It was argued on every hand that he had a lot of money buried somewhere, but of course could get nothing out of him. And so, so essentially he was embezzling and he had the money buried somewhere. And so, so this is what Cornelius was really like. Um, so, so any, anyway, um, why he moved back in there, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's really kind of sad. All right. We can skip now to, uh, to chapter 30. So we're, we're actually, we're actually moving along now. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, if we just stay on page two, 218, uh, do you want to take some of this, Gabe, instead of? Yeah, sure. So um, we see from the last chapter that Jim's stay in Patteson, uh with Cornelius wasn't that great. And any other person would probably have uh, quit those uh, living conditions the first chance they got. But um, Jim didn't. He uh, hung on, and as we see in the first sentence of chapter 30, um, <laughs> we know, well, we basically know why he, hang, he, he hung on. It was because right. of um, Jewel and, ha- and that he was uh, interested in her. But then we get um, in this chapter, we see just how Cornelius uh, treated Jewel, and it was with a lot of disrespect. He made her uh, call him father, and... Um, uh, show him a lot of respect and when she didn't uh, he well verbally abused her and threatened her and uh, yeah turned into more or less a madman and this uh, this made Jim pretty mad yeah I, th- I think that I think the line there that Marlo writes is he told me further that he didn't know what made him hang on but of course we may guess <laughs> yeah it's because of Jewel yeah it, it, it is it is kind of interesting I mean when I think about this and I think about the time that Conrad was writing, you know, you would think this would be more, happen more in our time and it wouldn't have happened then, but it's, it's, it's mankind. Some men have been mean to kids and wives for what centuries. And so this sounds really current to me. It sounds really current that this could, this could be happening. And of course, over the years, you know, I've, I have known people where this was happening, and and uh, it's just really discouraging for the women, and it's discouraging for the for the children as well. Now, I think at the top of page two nineteen, it talks about this is where Jim comes on the scene. It says he pursued her um, when she would not um, say call him father. Um, she, she would run off with her hands to her head. He pursued her, dashing in and out around the house amongst the sheds, would drive her into some corner where she would fall on her knees, stopping her ears, and then he would stand at a distance and declaim filthy, uh, declaim filthy denunciations at her for a half an hour at a stretch. Your mother was a devil, a deceitful devil, and you too are a devil. He would shriek in final outbursts, pick up a bit of dried earth and a handful of mud, and of course Jim knows there was plenty of mud around, and uh, he would fling it into her hair. I mean, that is abuse. You know, it's, uh, it's terrible. He says, sometimes, though, she would hold out full of scorn, confronting him in silence, her face somber and contracted, and only now and then uttering a word or two that would make the other jump and writhe with the sting. Now, he goes on to say, Jim told me that these scenes were terrible. And so, so that just tells us that Jim saw it all. He was there with it. He saw it. And so, so uh, you know, obviously, 
Uh, this is why this is why he hung on. He said uh, he said it was indeed a strange thing to come upon in the wilderness. The endless of such a subtle, cru- subtly cruel situation was appalling if you think of it. And he said the respectable Cornelius, the Malays called him, with a grimace that meant many things, was a much disappointed man. I don't know what he had expected would be done for him in his consideration of his marriage, but evidently the liberty to steal and embezzle and appropriate to himself for many years and in any way that suited him best the goods of Stein's trading company, and uh, he said, did not seem to him a fair equivalent for the sacrifice of his honorable name. In other words, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, there is this hint of this story behind there, you know, who this woman was that, that he married, and then, um, you know, what, what was happening with the daughter. And it's, it's almost like this was arranged. The marriage was arranged for a reason. And so to me, that's what's, what's, uh, what I'm thinking when I'm reading this. Um, it, it goes on to say, Jim would have enjoyed exceedingly thrashing Cornelius with an inch of his life. On the other hand, the scenes were so painful of a character, so abominable, that this impulse would be get out of earshot in order to spare the girl's feelings. They left her agitated, speechless, clutching her, clutching her bosom, and then with a stony, desperate face, and then Jim would lounge up and say unhappily, Now come, really. What's the use? You must try to eat a bit or give some such mark of sympathy. Cornelius would keep on slinking through the doorways across the veranda and back again as a mute fish with a malevolent, mistrustful, underhand glances. And I think this is interesting what Jim tells her. He says, I can stop his game. You know, so Jim had no qualms about knocking the guy off. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then what does she respond to him? Basically, that uh, uh, she would have found the courage to kill him with her own hands if, um, well, she's, she said he was intentionally wretched himself, and she would have found the courage to kill him with her own hands. Yeah. So she, she was thinking of killing him anyway. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't, to me, that's a little bit vague there. I don't know, you know, this, this is the way, uh, even my wife would agree with us on this one, that it, you don't know what Conrad's really trying to say there. You know, did she think he was a wretch, or was she not not convinced he was a wretch? Was there some goodness in him? You know, that's I don't know what that means, but uh, uh, it seems like she should have um, just re- recognized how wretched he was, and and obviously he didn't have a lot of respect for her mother either. You know, so so uh, again, it, it it just sounds like she was in such a bad situation. And Jim, you know, he wants to be the hero. I mean, that's his whole drive in life. You know, here's this beautiful girl. She's in trouble. Of course he's going to stay because she's the hero. You know, so, so anyway, uh, the, the, so there's just a lot about Cornelius. And you can see Marlowe really was concerned. Why didn't he see this? And because he lets Marlowe just, I mean, Marlowe says that, that Jim just lets Cornelius hang around. You know, why does he do that? I mean, they they obviously have their own place now, and Cornelius can come and go as he wants. You know, why would he allow that? You know, so so anyway, all right. So uh, um, if if we uh, if we really are honest with us, Jim, um, 
<laughs> Jim did just hang on for love. All right. Um, uh, Jim Jim has he, he doesn't have a lot to say say uh, say about him. It's very good. All right. Um, let me just go on and get my notes here. One one of the things I think that's really also important about this chapter is that Doraman, I think, is is very much up to speed on whatever is happening. And remember, Jim leaves Doraman to go help Jewel. And Doraman says, "You need to come back," you know, but but Jim doesn't do that because he can't leave Jewel. <laughs> you know, so so I I think it's really interesting. Again, we can think about Dorman. I know we talked last time that that he, um, you know, he, he wanted his son to be ruler of Patterson, but he still has his great feelings for Jim. And uh, remember, Stein had great feelings for Dorman because he was so loyal, and so so that's really there. So the the thing is, Dorman really really wanted to to protect him, and he knew um, Dorman knew that there were these plots to kill Jim. And uh, uh, this is in the middle of page 220. It says, Dorman had sent over twice a trusty servant to tell him seriously that he could do nothing for his safety unless he would recross the river again and live amongst the bougies at first. People of every condition used to call, often in the dead of night, in order to disclose to him plots for his assassination. He was to be poisoned. He was to be stabbed in the bathhouse. Arrangements were being made to have him shot from a boat on the river. Each of these informants professed himself to be his very good friend. It was enough, he told me, to spoil a fellow's rest forever. Something the kind was extremely possible, nay, probable, but the lying warnings gave him only the sense of deadly scheming going on all around him, on all sides, in the dark. Nothing more calculated to shake the best of nerve. Finally, one night, Cornelius himself, with a great apparatus of alarm and secrecy, unfolded in solemn wheeling tones a little plan where, for $100 or even for $80, let us say, $80, he, Cornelius, would procure a trustworthy man to smuggle Jim out of, out of the river, all safe. There was nothing else for it now. If Jim cared to pin for his life, what's $80, a trifle? So... What I think that's saying, and again, it's sometimes the writing isn't clear, is that Cornelius says, "Give me eighty bucks, I'll get you out of here." Is that what? Is that why you understand it? Yeah, that's how I saw it. Yeah, a hundred or eighty. So he's going down. You know, it's like, we're, yeah. well, I think you're worth a hundred, but now I'll go back to eighty. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so um, you know, the thing is, what does Jim do? Yeah, he's just not going to leave. <laughs> he's not going to leave. And so, what does that do to to? Uh, to Cornelius. <laughs> he gets a bit upset and keeps trying to get Jim to get out of town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so, uh, he said, okay, what, what, what's funny is, is when Jim says no, it's like Cornelius starts to cry. He's like crying. I love you so much. <laughs> you know, I love you so much that, that, uh, you know, so he pretends to shed tears, but then he gets cold and says, your blood be on your own head. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it, I don't know what you think, Gabe, but it, I don't think it's a matter that Jim didn't understand how absolutely wicked he was. I just think that he he really wanted to protect Jewel. You know, because obviously he had to see how evil he was. Yeah. He knows he's embezzling. He knows he's doing all that. 
And so, uh, you know, but, but it does say there, Marlowe comes back, and, and remember now, when Marlowe's telling the story, Jim has already told it to him. So, uh, you know, you can't, you can't get confused by all this. He says, uh, Jim confessed to me that he did not sleep a wink after the fellow had gone. He lay on his back on a thin mat spread over the bamboo flooring, trying idly to make out the bare rafters and listening to the rustling in the th torn thatch. A star suddenly twinkled through the hole in the roof. His brain was in a whirl, but nevertheless, it was on that very night that he matured his plan for overcoming Sharif Ali. So you see, Sharif Ali is back. <laughs> yep. That's the way it always works. Sharif Ali is back. And it had been thought of all the moments he could spare from the hopeless investigation into Stein's affairs, but the notion, he says, came to him then all at once. He could see, as it were, the guns mounted on the top of the hill. Uh, he got very hot and excited lying there. Sleep was out of the question more than ever. He jumped up and went out barefooted on the veranda. Walking silently, he came upon the girl, motionless against the wall, as if on the watch. In, in his then state of mind, it did not surprise him to see her up, not yet to hear her ask in an anxious whisper whether Cornelius could be, or where Cornelius could be, excuse me. He simply said he did not know. She moaned a little and peered into the campong. Everything was very quiet. He was possessed by his new idea and so full of it that he could not help telling the girl all about it. She listened, clapped her hands lightly, whispered softly her admiration, but he was evidently on the alert all the time. It seems he had been used to make a confidant of her all along. So, so you can see as this progresses, they're really now really talking to each other more and that, that he's now confiding in her in his plan. So, so he obviously is beginning to trust her. But then, um, as they're talking, he, he realizes that suddenly Cornelius appeared from nowhere. And that once he saw Jim, he ducked sideways. And so, so you know, uh, his whole story, well, why he was there was, and remember now, this is like after midnight, he said, well, there were some fishermen here with fish. He said in a shaky voice, to sell fish, you understand. He said it must have been then two o'clock in the morning, a likely time for anybody to hawk fish about. <laughs> so, so you know, Jim can see, I think, that the Cornelius is not going to be, you know, very helpful to him at all. And, uh, um, you know, uh, it, it, it was after this, then the, Jim kind of loses it, doesn't he? <laughs> what does he do? So he goes out, he goes out, and he starts screaming at everybody in the in the village, and he's he basically he's telling him, um, you know, Cornelius told him, "Well, you're going to die here," and uh, Jim says, "I did, I did not, and I don't intend to. I'm going to live here in Pattison," and of course Cornelius said, "You're going to die here." He said, uh, he, you know, he just goes out and he just starts screaming, and and he begins to tell everybody. I'm not leaving Pattison. I'm going to stay here. You know, I don't care what happens. You know, he says, um, uh, somehow the shadowy Cornelius far off there seemed to be the hateful embodiment of all the annoyances and difficulties he had found in his path. He let himself go. His nerves had been overwrought for days and called him many pretty names. Swindler, liar, sorry rascal, in fact, carried on in an extraordinary way. He admits he passed all bounds that he was quite beside himself, defied all Pattison to scare him away, declared he would make them all dance to his own tune yet, and so on. 
in a menacing, boasting strain. Perfectly bombastic and ridiculous, he said. His ears burned at the bare recollection. Must have been off his chump in some way. The girl who was sitting with us nodded her little head at me quickly, frowned faintly, and said, I heard him with childlike solemnity. He laughed and blushed. What stopped him at last, he said, was the silence, the complete death-like silence of the indistinct figure far over there that seemed to hang collapsed, doubled over the rail in a weirdless immobility. He came to his senses, ceasing suddenly, wondered greatly at himself. He watched for a while, not a stir, not a sound, exactly as if the chap had died while I had been making all that noise, he said. He was so ashamed of himself that he went indoors in a hurry without another word and flung himself down again. The rose seemed to have done him good, though, because he went to sleep for the rest of the night like a baby. <laughs> so he finally he finally got it all off his chest. And, uh, you know, it says he hadn't slept like that for weeks. But I didn't sleep, struck the girl. One elbow on the table and nursing her cheek, I watched. Her big eyes flashed, rolling a little, and then she fixed them on my face intently. So guess who didn't sleep? <laughs> yeah, Jewel. Jewel didn't sleep because she was watching her honey. <laughs> she, she, uh, she's a good girl, that's for sure. All right, so we're on the page, or not page, chapter thirty-one. So uh, uh, this is, uh, I think, it's pretty, pretty easy chapter to get through. And uh, basically, what what happens in this chapter is uh, Marlowe is just continuing. Uh, to relate the history of Jewel and Jim's relationship. And um, uh, at the very beginning of the chapter, um, Jim does makes a really wise move. He, he uh, finally realizes that he does need help. And of course he goes back to Doraman and the Buges community. And uh, he says, look, you know, you, you really need to, uh, to help me. Um, this is what uh, Marlowe says at the very beginning of chapter 31. You may imagine what interest I listened. All these details were perceived to have some significant 24 hours later. In the morning, Cornelius made no allusion to the events of the night. I suppose you will come back to my poorhouse, he muttered, surly slinking up just as Jim was entering the canoe to go over to Doraman's campong. Jim only nodded without looking at him. So so you can see that, that Jim is just not... He's not really willing to put up with, with Cornelius anymore. And uh, uh, still, I, I think when I now that I've read the end of the book, I mean, if this was a real person, he should have really been on top of Cornelius, you know, and probably locked him up. Um, he, he, uh, he said, "You'll find it good fun, no doubt." This is what Cornelius said to him, muttered the old, the other in a sour tone. Jim spent the day with the old. Nakoda, preaching the necessity of vigorous action to the principal men of the Buges community who had been summoned for a big talk. He remembered with pleasure how very eloquent and persuasive he had been. I managed to put some backbone into them that time, and no mistake, he said. Sharif Ali's last raid had swept the outskirts of the settlement, and some women belonging to the town had been carried off to the stockade. Sharif Ali's emissaries had been seen in the marketplace the day before, strutting about haughtily in white cloaks and boasting of the Raja's friendship for their master. One of them stood forward in the shade of a tree and leaning on the long barrel of a rifle, exhorted the people to pray, or exhorting the people to prayer and repentance, advising him to kill all the strangers in their midst 
some of whom he said were infidels and others even worse, worse children of Satan in the guise of Muslims. It was reported that several of the Raja's people amongst the listeners had loudly expressed their approbation or their approval. The terror amongst the common people was intense. Jim, immensely pleased with his day's work, crossed the river again before sunset. So, so remember now, this is in the past. This is before they took Ali's camp. And so they were in, and it, it sounds so typical of today that these people were terrorizing you know, the, 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 the poorer people of the community. And uh, they actually took their women you know, back to the camp. And to me, that sounds an awful lot like the Taliban. <laughs> and what's happening in Afghanistan right now. So, uh, uh, as uh, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so, you know, you can see it, it happening. So, in some ways, this book has a, has a currency to it. So, obviously, they were recommending that the infidels were killed, and that means Jim. You know, he was like, the only infidel on the whole <laughs> so so anyway uh, but but anyway he had got the Buddhist uh, community it says uh, they, they're motivated to action and uh, uh, you know it says as he got the Buddhist irretrievably committed to action and made himself responsible for success for his own head he was also elated that in the lightness of his heart he is absolutely tr- he absolutely tried to be civil with Cornelius, but Cornelius became wildly jovial in response, and it was almost more than he could stand, he says, to hear his little squeaks of false laughter, to see him wriggle and blink, suddenly catch hold of his chin and crouch low over the table with a distracted stare. The girl did not show herself, and Jim retired early. When he rose to say goodnight, Cornelius jumped up, knocking his chair over and ducked out of sight as if to pick up something he had dropped. His good night came uskly from the under the table. Jim was amazed to see him emerge without dropping a jaw, and staring stupidly frightened, he clutched the edge of the table. What's the matter? Are you unwell? asked Jim. Yes, yes. A great colic in my stomach, says the other, and it is Jim's opinion that he was perfectly true. That was a big mistake. All right, so we're not going to tell you what the end of this chapter is, so... (laughs) because we are out of time again today. And so that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah, Gabe, and I will continue our discussion of Jim's adventure on Patterson. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may also be able to find a good use copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcrg.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. And so until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.